Hey everybody, welcome back to the 52nd episode of Taps and Patience. I am AJ with Design the Everything here with Harrison of Precision Ingenuity. And we have Ken from Robertson's Custom Creations and now Flux Workholding. How are you doing, guys? Good. Doing well. So, Ken, I heard you bought a company recently. <laughs> yeah, we did. Well, we being me. It was an interesting process, though. We, we should get to that, but for, I guess we're just getting straight into it today. But for the people who aren't familiar with your business, why don't you give them a little bit of background first on uh, Robertson's Custom Creations and then on Flux Workflow. Sure. So Robertson Custom Creations is kind of, I guess, a little bit more generalized where previously I used to do a lot of woodworking, cutting boards and different decorative things on the side, um, got into CNC routers. And then for a while lately, been focusing on laser engraver tools and jigs and things like that. It was kind of something as I got my first Tormach, I saw a gap in what was there and decided to kind of start going that way and found I was really into the metalworking side more than the woodworking side. Flux Workholding is something I came across a couple years ago. You know, they focus on making a kind of very small vice. It's only like three inches by two inches. But like really ideal for kind of op two type work holding, um, completely soft jaws, and was really unique for kind of small parts and high density. So when they, you know, I joined their their pup Kickstarter um, and was a customer there, and then you know they kind of tapered off and went out of business around last year, and then a while ago they sold off one of their other product lines, um, Carbon Tactics, which where they you know, made belts and, and other things. And after I saw that, I kind of reached out to say, hey, would you be interested in selling Flux? Because I was kind of looking for something else to uh, take on and expand with. Okay. And what sort of equipment are you running now? You said you had a Tormach in the past and sounded like a router. Yeah. So equipment wise, right now I have two brother Speedios. Um, I still have my Avid 5x10, um, but I'm probably going to be looking to get rid of that. And getting a, a lathe or CNC lathe. Yeah. I was wondering about that because I didn't see any lathes in your, any of your Instagram stuff. And from my understanding, from some of the videos I've watched on flex work holding, they have some pretty tight tolerance lathe parts that are in their, uh, in their little vice that they have. Yeah. I'm currently shopping around for a lathe and I don't really have experience there. So like initially was looking at um, just outsourcing that. So I have two people working with and kind of, Divide and conquering with both of them just to kind of get an initial stockpile of some of the, the lathe parts. Okay. And then I'm not under pressure to like start producing parts right away. Yeah. So what is it like uh, buying a new business? How has the transition into walking into someone else's process has been? It's interesting. Like it's kind of quiet at first and then you get the CAD cam files and then it's like, boom, crazy, just a mad week of, going through everything. And for one, previously they were using SolidWorks. Um, I use Fusion 360. So there's no direct porting to maintain, you know, all dimensional specifications and everything. So like I, I had like a education, access to an educational license of SolidWorks and could kind of piece together different pieces and then, you know, import, import section analysis and do different diagrams like that to compare. But like, even from the beginning, like 
I'd posted on some machining Facebook groups and whatnot, like anyone gone through the process of acquiring another shop and like taking on their product lines and things like that. And it's something that really no one really had any input on. Like what is the process? What are some things you wish you did? And, you know, I think in many groups, you get a split between the people doing product focus and job shop focus. Yep. And there really wasn't anything out there to kind of use as a benchmark for how should this go? What's the best way to, you know, figure out what a, a reasonable offer would be and things like that. So like I'd re originally reached out to them in May. Um, we had some conversations going back and forth and it kind of took me a month to two months to kind of figure out exactly where I wanted to be, you know, just in terms of road mapping and, and making out the right estimate for a reasonable offer and whatnot. So is it just you right now that's running the business or do you got some help right now? For the most part, just me, my wife, my wife helps out. She's my number one shipper. Like the post office is like a block away from my daughter's school. So like she ships most of my packages. Um, and then my son, he was actually operating one of the speedios over the summer. So he kind of comes back and helps as he, he has time off. So, so with, for with, um, Robertson Custom Creations, how were you marketing and selling your products? The number one way was Etsy. I just recently started doing more AdSense and whatnot on my own since some specific products I found like over two thirds of them were like offsite ads. Really? Um, and that's one thing with Etsy where like you pay like 15 to 20% automatically to them and you have no control over, you know, keywords or any of that stuff. But, you know, Etsy's, Etsy's a decent platform, but like it definitely has its cons. Mm -hmm. So like I started looking at how can I move off of Etsy and the challenge with Etsy is really building your own brand. Like, how do you get any name recognition or drive traffic to you as a brand versus, you know, sometimes I'd see others, you know, buy it. And it's like, oh, I bought it off some shop on Etsy. And it's like, how do I, I get some recognition behind that? And so that was one thing, even with Flux is like, they already have a brand. They've already been selling to customers and been around for a couple of years. So there's value in, you know, keeping that brand around going forward. Yeah. With, with you, with you taking a brand over like that, are you planning on backing down from some of the work you're, you've been doing and switching over to just flux or are you planning to run both of these businesses kind of in tandem or merging them? Like what's your plans for that? Initially I plan to run both. I think over the summer I did a good decent stockpile as sort of anti lean, but I did stockpile on some of flux's product or uh, our Robertson custom creations products because I knew I'd kind of be coming up towards closing on flux and there would probably be at least a month, month and a half of kind of ramping up and building an initial stockpile for the products there. They are two very different ones though. Like flux is kind of lower order volume, but more value per order. Whereas, you know, the laser tooling is more higher order value, but low value per order. So they're kind of very different in that regard. Makes sense. I had a question earlier. Now I lost it. <laughs> oh, I remember what I was going to say. It wasn't going to be a question. So you were talking about the strong brand behind Flux. Uh, here's something I can announce. Well, not announce really for the first time because it's kind of an anti-announcement. 
Design the Everything was looking at acquiring another company. Um, it was actually, and this is going to seem very off topic, but I'll get back to it. Uh, it was actually a knitting needle company, which seems very strange for us, but they had a super, super strong brand and like just presence in the community. And so it's obviously a little bit tangential to what Design the Everything does, but their community side was just so good that it was hard to not, you know, kind of take a little bit seriously. And in fact, it kind of worked against us because originally they said, you know, hey, we're going out of business, you know, we're selling off our inventory, buy. And I don't think they expected to anybody for anybody to be interested in the company. And then it was actually Scott's mom sent me a message and was like, you guys need to take this over now. Like there were so many people that were just so upset seeing this company go away. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, we'll, we'll talk to him. And we sent him a couple initial emails. And I think we were probably the first people who were interested, who showed interest in buying the company from him. But then there were a lot of people who ended up being interested in it. And it's like, well, they have like 25 other offers. And it's like, there's no way we can afford to be competitive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that it's that brand though. That's really like incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. And even I kind of look at like the two different brands that I like Robertson Custom Creations. It's not well set up for repeat business. Like you kind of buy what Mm -hmm. you need and then are almost done with it. Some people come back for different accessories, but like Flux, like in most Vice lines, you buy into the system. You want them to be around for a while and you come back for the consumables where, you know, the recognition and the existing customer base is one of the more valuable aspects of it. Um, because no one likes to buy a vice and then no longer be able to get the accessories they need to keep using it. Yep. So were you looking for a company to buy and then found Flux? Or did you see Flux and go, well, it looks like a good idea and decide to buy it? I kind of looked at the possibility. <clears throat> um, there was one other one was kind of looking at like, hey, would you be interested? Um, it didn't really go anywhere. But it's kind of like, I was looking to to fill out my my production capability. Just you know, with the two speedios, they're very capable, but I didn't have the you know the spindle active all the time. Yeah, and was sort of looking at how I could expand either my product line or other brand brands. So I wasn't proactively looking, but like when I saw they sold carbon carbon tactics, is when I kind of just like well, you know, I sat on it for a few days and then just figured, hey, I'll reach out and just kind of shot in the dark just to see initially hadn't really run any figures or whatnot, but it was like, I'll just reach out to kind of see if there's that interest and then get the ball rolling. Okay. <clears throat> and I guess you just answered that question. Sorry, my brain's still trying to catch up here. Okay. Let's take a step back. How did you start your business? Why did you start your business? What was your original goal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? So I've been in machining for, well, if you count CNC woodworking stuff or on the router, probably about three years. I've kind of actually picked that up more as a COVID thing. Um, That summer couldn't do anything. So I figured, hey, I'll get a router. But I've kind of always been in a machine shop. Like I don't necessarily call myself a machinist because that kind of implies more skill than I think I have at this point. But like... If I did, I'd be a fourth generation machinist. 
My dad is a machinist. He owned a machine shop when I was growing up. I used to work there summers and breaks. So, you know, was always around CNC's, um, the lovely smell of coolant in the morning and things like that. But I ended up going into software. So for about 20 years, I was a software developer working at various startups and, and things like that. But around 2021, decided it was time to kind of make a change. And instead of looking at going to another software company or software gig, I kind of decided wanted to take a look at just going myself, um, being my own boss. You know, startups were fun. I like small companies, but also in that kind of environment, like I, I like being down and in the problems. And, you know, sometimes you're always accountable to someone else or, you know, looking for another round of funding and things like that. I was like, what if I just tried doing this myself, keep it just me, not like other employees. And, you know, really found I liked building a product business. So, you know, kind of that whole process, you find different, different themes that carry between your career. Like I was very interested in kind of automation, continual iteration, like building out a product line as opposed to, you know, just, you know, like kind of like job shot work where you get a job done and then move on to another job. I like having long running processes that I can iterate on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, I think that's true for everybody here on the podcast. Um, okay. Yeah, I've, I've, I've always gotten in the job shop space just to grow the business to a point where I can afford to do products because products seem to take a lot more cash flow up front, but are a lot easier to cash flow as they get rolling and kind of grow. But mm-hmm. the job shop stuff, it's kind of like quick cash. You can build up a client basis and you can get a, a, a good, good, good cash flow pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But once you, uh, it, it's really harder. It's a lot harder to scale it. I feel like than a product because the way you scale a job shop is you get more different parts from different customers, and it just becomes a lot of different small runs of different parts. Versus a product line, you can really optimize and get really good flow. Mm-hmm. So, like my dad's business is always a job shop, but in a way. He's been he's been working with the same customers for like 25 years, um, and a lot of it is this reorders of the same product, but they oftentimes change ever so slightly. So it's like you can develop long running relationships with the, the your 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 customers, but like it's not always so focused on like you know what's your fixturing because that's something that's going to change. It's like you get an order for 400 of these and then 500 of those, and it, it's just kind of a different setup. And I. I kind of like, you know, this is my product and my baby and I want to continually iterate it until it's like buttery smooth. And then even then I'll kind of go back and be like, well, I can, you know, double up the density with this type of fixturing or whatnot. Yeah. How has the community reaction been about you taking over Flux? Overall, really great. I had a lot of people reach out just, you know, kind of glad to see you know, the brand come back and be glad that they'll be able to start getting, you know, soft jaws and accessories again for their vices. Because I think it was one of the things where they, they had gone quiet. And, you know, personally, as a customer of Flux as well, is one of the things is like, well, you know, what's, we kind of like to know what's going on and whatnot. Like, 
is there a future or, you know, is this just going to collect dust? Like I had my pucks and I was like, I'm only going to use these on like really good projects, not like, you know, testing and experimenting. So a lot of people have been glad to kind of see it coming back. I try to post periodic updates just like, you know, as, as I get soft jaws built out or, or start with pucks or bases, just so people know that it's kind of coming along and will eventually, you know, might take me you know, a couple more weeks, but like going to get there. So can you give us a quick rundown of the Flux product line for those of us that aren't super familiar? Sure. So they really had kind of two product lines. The first was their vice, which was just a three inch by six inch vice, either dual station or single station. But it's really all about like the entire soft top is soft jaws. So you can, you know, machine in whatever shape you need, you know, and get even really good depth in terms of, you know, getting good work holding or, or, or different type of. Um, shapes and whatnot. The other product line was their puck, which is kind of like a small, very simplified zero point system. So it used a hearth coupling just with different, you know, kind of slotted teeth essentially to get really strong location and then a flexible puck to kind of get the or, uh, pull stud to secure it in the Z and, and kind of lock it in place. The different tops could allow you to go from like a pallet where you do everything yourself or using flexures. So, you know, instead of a vise which kind of clamps soft jaws against it, you have a solid piece of aluminum with kind of a thinner part down at the bottom and a screw going through it that you just kind of clamp it all together. So it's kind of one simple unit that kind of gets, you know, really good for kind of just having enclosed miniature vise essentially. So you could quickly interchange them. I think I use three or four different pucks and can easily go from one to the other. Yeah. I, I remember when those were first announced, um, it was really cool because you could get kind of a fourth or fifth axis orientations by mm-hmm. stacking the pucks. And so if you didn't have a fourth axis or you wanted to hold apart at a weird angle, um, I feel like they were like, I don't know if they were 45, if you could rotate them in 45s, or if, if you could do half of a 45, which would go to that. With the teeth, you can actually get 15 degrees. So, you know, okay, you can, I'm, with the fourth adapter, like you can basically get um, all four sides of a part just by, you know, loosening, switching it around, and tightening it again. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really cool because um, it, it was, it was a poor man's fourth axis, you know, whenever you didn't need it. Yeah. Or, or, or whenever you you didn't need a, uh, or when you didn't have a fourth axis, or or you know maybe you didn't want to set it up. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean it can be quick and simple to set up. Just if um, you know you're not looking to switch everything over, mm-hmm. you know take the puck off, slap on the fourth adapter, slap it on the side there, and you can get to whatever side you need. Yeah, that's really cool. So if you are making a pallet to mount on one of these pucks, do you? machine the, um, I don't remember what you called it, but that interface pattern directly into your palette? Or is that like something you can bolt on? How does that work? So it comes available in a palette and you could make something that bolts on top of the palette. That's actually one of the ways I'm making the puck base. But the interface there, it's a little bit more intricate to make yourself and it is 
what the uh, the patent they have that's around that focuses mm -hmm. on. But you know, I think the versatility of just having the palette can let you do different types of things with it. You know, looking at doing some larger palettes or whatnot. But you know, if you have a bigger thing you want, you could easily machine in a mounting system on it. So you are selling a palette, like basically you're selling the palettes for the top tooling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Would you ever consider selling just like a donut that you could bolt onto a fixture? That might be. I think by then would look at going steel as opposed to aluminum. Mm -hmm. I am looking at doing the bases in steel as well, because then I think you'd get better or more longevity out of the single piece. Yeah, yeah. definitely. That that and that like forty five or that uh, ninety degree angle bracket, like everything that's basically you're gonna hang on to and not not be machining on, do a steel. Mm -hmm. So, so are you actively selling anything right now, or are you just kind of build up a catalog? Not or, right excuse now. Excuse me, an inventory. Right now, working on kind of getting past initial prototypes for the product line. So, just as I'm replicating how they were made, um, ensuring what I produce is backwards compatible with their existing versions. And I mean, actually, this is the first time I've kind of had a product that had multiple components that all need to go together. Like with most of the other stuff on Robertson Custom Creations, they're kind of singular pieces. But like the vices have multiple pieces that need to go in and interface. And, you know, maybe I'm not allowing enough tolerance here. So working on kind of making sure the whole unit fits together and at each of the individual pieces is still backwards compatible. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a lot of work to get it up and going, but I'm excited to see where it goes. And it's funny because I actually almost bought some flux working vices right, right when they went down. Mm. Cause I was, cause I feel like for the uh, Tormach, they actually do pretty good because of how small they are. You can have a lot of stations set up. Oh yeah, Definitely. And so something like the Tormach or Sile, I think it's perfect for anything with a smaller work area where, you know, you want some good density. It yeah. can be useful. Yep. That's sweet. So kind of changing topics a little bit to get off of flux. As I was perusing through and I was taking a look at your. Uh, your router table that you built. I was pretty impressed with all that. Did you. Did you route the tool holders on the router itself, or did you do a Tormach to do those? I made the tool holders with the Tormach. And then, because that was one thing where you very much had to machine both sides. And, you know, that's a learning process for kind of doing two-sided machining and, like, not getting a line showing up around the other side. But, like, it has a taper that has to be on both sides and the little gripping jaws that need to be machined through. So I made those on the Tormach, but then fit them on the Avid. Okay. It's kind of cool because they, they also look like they have a flexture, which um, is kind of similar to the, the flex work holding jaws, mm -hmm. the aluminum jaws. So I, just, I thought that was just kind of interesting and kind of cool. It's a, it's similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I made them out of Delrin so they could be reasonably flexible, but also not necessarily fatigued too, too fast. That's cool. Do you sell those? Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. They look really good. Yeah, I put those on my website rather than uh, on Etsy. 
But um, I also made ISO 20 versions um, a while ago. Just those are like itty bitty tool holders. But like, you know, I think they're more for higher RPM routers, like 30, 40,000. Yeah. 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 I'm looking at the uh, Haas CM1 and it uses ISO 20. Mm-hmm. And that's a 30K spindle. Yeah. I got one tool holder just for testing. I'm like, oh my gosh, it fits in the palm of my hand. <laughs> I had a machine for a while. It was a uh, machine I got on Facebook Marketplace used and it needed a controller retrofit. I never actually got it running, uh, but it was an ISO 10 tool holder. Ooh, what's the biggest you can hold in that? I have no idea. It's just a itty bitty little teeny tiny thing. I think I think you could get them in ER 16, so three eighths of an inch max. Hmm. That would have been a really cool machine if I'd ever actually got it running. It spent its entire life cutting plaster. And so mm. like it was super old and out of date, but it was in good condition. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know ISO 10 was a thing. Or, or it's BT-10 super rare and obscure, but it exists. That's cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is small. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about when you made the jump to uh, Brothers? Because you got two Speedios now, but... When did you get your first? How long ago was that? So I got my first, I think, May of last year. I think I got my Tormach in January. So I had that for about five, six, five months. Um, and I kept it around for a while. But like I started out with the Tormach. And that was really like completely new in terms of going into metal machining where on the router, the main way I do work holding is like, CA glue, super glue, and, and blue painter's tape. It's like the best way. You can use clamps and whatnot, but painter's tape is amazing. Um, or CA glue is amazing. So, you know, the Tormach was learning a lot about work holding. Um, I really kind of fell in love with fixturing. You know, I had the Pearson palette. Uh, well, I had a Saunders Machine Works uh, mod vice on it, but then also could throw on the Pearson palette. And it was kind of re- where I really learned everything about you know, initially machining, pretty much all aluminum and some stainless. But like, as I started developing my product lines, you know, the, some of the pieces were very long running and I just didn't have the production capacity that I really wanted. The machine could be busy almost all day, but like it wasn't necessarily putting out as much. And so that was when actually I think, it was a within tolerance podcast where I was listening to austere manufacturing and like, they just started off with the speedio and I'm like, no way, you know, you didn't start small with a Tormach and build up or something like that. And it's kind of like, you know, maybe just dive in head first, jump all the way up to a speedio and then, you know, kind of see where things go from there. My wife didn't entirely balk at the idea. And so I'm like, <laughs> okay, this, this could actually work. I actually went to go see a Speedio from someone in the Bay Area. And I told my wife, if I see this machine, I'm probably going to want to get it. And so she was okay with it. But yeah, so got the first one last May. I think I got the second one in April of this year. And I was kind of where the Speedio wasn't busy. The My first one wasn't completely busy. But I was looking at kind of having a second one, like more production focused. And then I could interchange different prototyping and, and whatnot on the first. So the first one was a 700 
the uh, second one was a 1000. So having the two, I think, has given me more flexibility, just switching between different materials or prototyping different things on a 700 while the 1000 does like production, keeping me fully stocked and whatnot. So you're, you're able to keep both those machines running pretty good then? Yeah. I'm pretty well in stock on Robertson Custom Creation stuff now, um, but it kind of gives me the flexibility for experimenting um, right now. So like some of the flex pieces, I'm like, okay, now starting to run more production type stuff. And like, so some of that's in 4140 steel. It takes a little while. So I'm like, okay, I'll set it up on here. It'll take about an hour. And then I can, you know, set up, you know, whatever cam I was developing last night for, you know, the, the other machine. Gotcha. Yeah, I can't tell you how jealous I am of you having two speedios. I would, I would love to have just one right now, but yeah, because yeah. you're right, Tormox are a good platform to learn on, but when you really get into production, it's it's hard to keep up on one of them. Mm-hmm. So I, for a while, I even had the Tormox set up next to it, but I was mostly running acrylic and some other other stuff on it, and like it just wasn't getting used as much. And I'm like, you know. I could really just use another machine that's like pretty much equally capable just so, you know, I can split and multitask between them. Did you notice an increase in, in, uh, I don't know, cash flow or order volumes or like, was there any, like, cause I, I've noticed sometimes when people get new machines out of thin air, their business starts to pick up. Did anything like that happen when you switched over to the Speedios? Like as you were able to fill, fulfill orders faster or maybe the quality was better or maybe you found yourself with more time? Like was there a kind of a knock-on effect of like growing the business that you probably wouldn't have seen even if you've got two or three more Tormox to try to fill production? Yeah, I don't think it was necessarily linked to the machine, but I think more the production capability, I found I started moving, being able to move ahead. So okay. kind of before with the Tormach, I was a little bit more operating like just in time and I'd be trying to like build an inventory. But like, you know, just in one case, like the the main fences I have, like the, the cycle time for that was roughly an hour on the Tormach. Just initially jumping over to the Speedio, it went down to 28 minutes. And then I made further fine tune fine tuning from there just as, had more horsepower, I could actually, you know, I do a lot of slotting in that. And I found, you know, hey, I can slot with a quarter inch end mill, five and a half millimeters deep at 280 inches a minute. Uh, So like that, as I fine tuned it, it got even better. Or just with more area, I could increase density. But like, I think the more production capability there, it allowed me to get further ahead with my inventory that then allowed me to kind of just reduce my stress instead of being like, you know, I need to get three kits done today to sh- make shipments today. I'd have capacity. I could be start looking at, well, okay, what are my order trends and how much do I need to keep in stock? So then my way of operating after, you know, a month or two of having the Speedio was pretty much, I had my stock levels and at the beginning of each week, um, you know, I'd, I'd keep 30 days of stock around. And at the beginning of the week, I'd look at my stock and say, okay, this is what I need to run this week to get back to full stock. And then that was my plan for that week. So I think having that furtherness ahead, you know, I could do prototyping or developing other products just because 
as I knew what I needed to get done to just maintain that, I could fit in different playing around or prototyping or, hey, this works. And even on the product, I could fine tune it. Like, you know, with in-process probing now, I'm like, okay, this chamfer, I can actually probe it for the exact thickness to know I'm doing an exactly, you know, 20,000 chamfer on it and, and things like that. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I uh, so this week I was making some parts. I teach locally at a university and they have a Haas mini mill with the Renishaw probe. And I was able to do some in, in process probing for the very first time. And I, I, I look at that and I go, my next machine is going to have a wireless probe regardless of what it is. I don't, I don't care yeah. what it is. The having the probe and the ability to set it all up to where it can do stuff automatically. It's, it's a game changer. It just reduces stress and reduces error. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, even getting in process probing set up on my Tormach, even when it's not 100% reliable, is still a huge improvement over not having it at all. So, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm yeah. a big fan of that. Absolutely. Even when you have like multi op work and it's like, okay, I just want this really specifically centered around this hole or, or things like that, it, it's kind of just a game changer for, at, at least for me, looking at it like repeatability and reliability of your process. It's kind of a, a great asset. Changing gears ever so slightly back to the uh, the flux side of things, tolerancing wise, does is uh, as you've kind of looked over these prints that they have for you, do they have some pretty tight tolerances? And do you have some inspection processes for measuring these parts as they're coming off? Like, how's how's that looking? Mm-hmm. That's one thing I've been working on. Like, as I make my parts, making sure they fit together, like. Probably the tightest tolerance would be like the locating pins and how they fit in. You know, one of the main things I realized is like adding flux is going to require, you know, my existing product lines didn't have really stringent tolerances. Like I'd make sure I'd have different gauges for making sure stuff fit and whatnot. And, you know, I check them as the one comes off the machine, but not as much of like, you know, it's probably plus or minus five, ten thou easily. On this, it's going to be a lot more specific. So, like, I actually ordered a Tessa height gauge, which should come in a couple of days. So then I'm going to look at, you know, doing more like every 10 runs, probably, you know, pull one off, validate it on there, just thickness, location of uh, critical features. And then I think also it's really useful just building like uh, validation jigs, like, hey, this comes off. Let me just make sure this fits. Um, and that can be, you know, your easiest validation. I mean, fitment and backwards compatibility is one thing that I think is very important just because you might have someone buying a soft jaw today that's fitting on a vice from two years ago. Um, and in some cases, it might not be one I ever had the ability to check. I do have the pucks already, so I'm like validating against the stock I already had. Um, and actually, one kind customer who'd actually reached out offered to send me his flux vice just to be able to get initial measurements and do validations off of it. So I think it actually comes tomorrow and I'm going to be basically measuring every feature on it just to get a good map of it to keep around for a long run. Did they, did they have their models and drawings with the tolerances on them or was that something that they just knew what values they needed to hit? The drawings that they had, they were specified. Um, it's like locating pins and those features but I think sometimes 
what I'd more find is like, you know, in the cam in some places, like a stock to leave, a negative stock to leave where, you know, then the question is, well, were they using that as opposed to wear compensation? Those were fairly limited. And I think they mostly were aware around wear comp on some critical pieces. But, you know, even just looking at what I produce and what they have, like in some of the softwares, I'm like, oh, theirs are actually under a couple thou more than mine. So like my first base, mine was actually a very snug fit. And so it's kind of like just figuring out the, those right tolerances. Yeah. For, for me personally, what, I've, what I'm going to try to do is I want to try to get my all my stuff set up where uh, if I were to do a product, like in the, in the few runs and some of the things I'm trying to do, like in the lathe, I'm trying to get, I'm about to have to do a lot of runs of parts that have to hold um, plus or minus, or not plus or minus, like four tenths total or three tenths mm. total on my lathe and trying to hold those types of tolerances over, you know, 20 to 40 shafts of different sizes and different complexities. What I'm, what I want to come up with is a system where when I switch out my, when I retouch off a insert in the, in the, in the lathe, and I run in the next part, I want that part to be perfectly on size. So when I when I redo a new insert, I'm going to be, and I'm adjusting everything, I'm going to adjust it in the program. And then as that insert wears out, then I will use wear offset in the controller at that point to compensate for it over time. Mm-hmm. And so the idea being, anytime I put in a new tool, I reset everything to zero and it should be spot on. And then from there... I adjust where as I'm measuring stuff over time. Mm-hmm. And so even cause like tools will have a certain amount of deflection depending on the type of cut they're taking. And so I can't adjust where for every single situation because I might adjust it on one feature and it'll mess it up in another. And so in those scenarios, what I want to do is I want to adjust it in the program that way globally, everything's on size and I can tweak each individual tool path to get to that point. And then from there, as the tool wears and it's affecting everything, then I can adjust where in the controller to keep that in track. Mm-hmm. That's my thought process. Yeah, and even with like in-process probing, someone in the Brother community just recently updated the post so that in-process where where detection can be updated. So you know you can machine something, purposely leave ten thou, and then probe it. And then update your wear compensation to then catch it. And I'm like, oh, that was no more doing separate runs of stuff for updating wear comp. And maybe on super critical features, that's a good way to ensure it's spot on through the life of a tool. That now, is really nice. Yeah. Now, if I remember correctly, Grimsmo was doing something like that on his lathe where he got a probe for his lathe and he was updating wear comp. And he was probing every part and he found that he was actually chasing his tail, doing it on every single part, because if there was a slight deviation one way, he might overcorrect for it. And so he was constantly seeing large variation. And so Mm -hmm. he switched it to like every five or to average every five and then adjust it from there. Something like that. Forget the exact video and, and talk it was, but it was very interesting where he was like, you know, if I adjusted it too often, it would sometimes actually backfire 
and and you would get more deviation over time rather than less. Yeah, and I know even in the settings, you can specify how much you correct it by, like not 100% correct it, but like maybe 80% or something like that. Yeah. But it is probably something you don't necessarily need every run, maybe like every 10 or something like that, well, depending on... Do, doing it as a percentage, I really like that. Yeah, that makes because sense. That makes that that I think that's the equivalent of that allows you to probe every single time and take a continuous average. Mm-hmm. So I, I I actually like that a lot. Even when I used to like I used to just make like one inch cubes just to test. I wouldn't update it exactly. I'd do like you know two thirds or whatever, and be like, oh, okay, that's on enough. Yeah, I like that a lot. I'm gonna I is is. In process probing of where is that in the, I believe it's upgraded. Like you have to pay for it. It's part of the machining extension. I think it's the machining extension where you then get a probe geometry tool path. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to have, whenever I get a new machine, that's something I'm going to have to get because that's too useful of a feature. It wouldn't be that hard to do with macros and just call a, um, yeah, change the, Change the pro. Oh, would you change the probing macro? I don't know. Call it macro f- for the probing from Fusion with like a pass through NC or something. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, by changing it in your poster. I don't know. In your business so far, have you had, in either of them, have you had any notable low points? I'd say when I crashed my first spindle probe, that was a <laughs> definite low point. And actually, it was at the worst time, too, because like I was just changing over all of my work holding. So like I was going from orange vices and pallets to using Lang. I just got all my Lang gear and was going to build out my first pallets for my products. And I was like, OK, I have enough. You know, I, I was like, it's going to take me like a week of downtime just to get these built out or whatnot and be good. And then the first one I go to make, I st- Stupidly have the wrong work coordinate where it was the right location, but wrong Z. And I wrap it in my spindle probe in. That's That was the moment I learned do not run a new program on full rapid on the Speedio. Mm-hmm. Even I think I turned it down to four. So like rapids are one through four or one through five. Um, I had it at four, but like four is still way too fast to catch it. Like I hit feed hold, but not too, not early enough. Three and two. Yeah. It's like if you're not really not sure, like, oh, that was an expensive mistake. That was a very, very much a low point. But what about what about for like business growth or like sales? Like, have you had any any stagnation in the business where you you look at your business and you go, man, I need to be seeing a higher revenue stream or my customer base is dropping off or a product that was selling really good is not, you know, people, people who want to buy it have now bought it. So I need to switch over to a new product to, to try to fill the gap. Like, have you had any, any instances like that in the business? Not so much like mistakes that you've made, but just market conditions changing or customer base changing that you have to react to. I think sometimes Etsy just changes stuff out from under you. And like, you don't necessarily know why you suddenly drop down in the algorithm or whatever. Cause like I had months where, you know, especially earlier this year, like I was doing two X my volume last year and I was like, oh, this is great growing. 
you know, I'm going to be keeping the other machine totally busy. That was around when I added the second machine. And then like June, I think it was like massive drop off. And I'm like, what's going on? There's like no, especially with Etsy, there's no visibility into it to really get an understanding. I'm like, you know, am I dropping off in search results and are people just busy with summer and like not ordering stuff? So, I mean, you really don't have that kind of understanding, but then also like, you know, sometimes I'd get random questions of like, you know, Hey, what are the sizes on this? And I'm like, it's in the product description. Finally, I go look at my product description <laughs> and whatnot. And I find Etsy moved it from the sidebar down to the bottom collapsed underneath the reviews and review pictures. So it's like buried. And I'm like, well, then it's pointless having a description or putting details in a description. Nobody's going to see it. So then it's like you don't have that control over your own presentation, your own storefront. And now it's like, you know, basically your pictures are what sells it. You know, and that's more, I think, whereas looking at like my own site makes more sense. Building a brand there, I can have control over all the aspects of the layout and everything like that. But like you do see weird ebb and flows with Etsy. It, it, it's kind of just hard to anticipate there. Yep. That was, that was one reason why we moved to having a Shopify as our main uh, sales source is because yeah, Etsy was kind of weird like that. And, you know, they do hide your descriptions and, you know, we were even using the pattern by Etsy website which was very easy. And it also did help our Etsy sales like significantly. We used to have probably 10 times the Etsy sales that we do now because uh, we were driving all of our traffic to Etsy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if for some reason Etsy decides that, you know, it doesn't like that you have magnets in your product like they did to fidget things and then all of a sudden you're done. Mm -hmm. So I, I've been very happy with Squarespace or excuse me, with Shopify. And now that we can advertise and send people directly to our website and not, you know, send someone to Etsy and then, oh, look, there's a pretty picture. They click on that and they buy someone else's product. So, yeah. yeah and I think even Etsy has that customer base, but like, you know, advertising on Etsy, I just never really found the ROI there. And in some cases, you know, it's like, oh, I turned off search. Is that why I'm, my shop at Globally is like not showing up? You know, you go on vacation mode and come back and suddenly, you, you know, orders don't pick up right away. I think their algorithms are just, it, it's harder to get insight. It's all about momentum. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have exactly one product that we found was profitable to advertise on Etsy. And so we just throw like a dollar a day at it and I don't know, maybe make back a dollar and a half. Like it's not. It's not wildly profitable, but it keeps the store alive and mm -hmm. we occasionally get other things that get ordered. But um, yeah, almost all of our business is now on Shopify. Nice. Yeah, Flux I plan to keep entirely just on Shopify. It doesn't make sense to sell a vice on Etsy. No. <laughs> have you taken over ownership of the website? Yes. So I have ownership over all the different aspects now, Instagram, Shopify, domain name and all that. I haven't really gone changing stuff. I do plan to do some revising of prices or maybe looking at that. I'm still kind of working on like building out the realistic like cost of goods type tracking on, on the product lines. 
I did speculative stuff before when I was looking at, you know, giving an offer and whatnot. But now it's kind of like, oh, okay, this is the actual like production time for these parts. So going back to buying a business, you mentioned that when you were doing research, you couldn't find anything that like described that process. So can you describe that process for us? Sure. So I think really initially, I kind of looked at what was their, pro- what was the range of their product lines? And just in terms of like figuring out you know, what should I offer? What's in a reasonable offer? You know, you try to look at like, you know, what's the time to, you know, recoup your investment and all of that. You know, other businesses have heard oh, it's like, oh, one year of revenue, two years or things like that. I really kind of just focused on like, what is the profit margin on some of the different pieces where, you know, even if it takes longer to sell it, like it's hard to know what the sales numbers will be from the business because they've been dormant for a little while. I may see a major uptick, but then I don't necessarily know what the steady volume will be. So I really kind of just focused on like, how can I figure out the relative cost for it to understand a base profit margin? And then kind of look at like, you know, how many vices would I need to make and sell or how many of the different soft jobs would I need to, to sell in order to get a reasonable cash flow back? Um, so not necessarily looking at paying for itself, but like reaching a reasonable cash flow point. So a lot of that was just kind of building base um, estimates, looking at, you know, what's the, the material I need from it? What's some of the different um, pieces involved in, you know, the base vice? Reached out to some material vendors to get like a quote for this, for, for you know, an initial piece. And then kind of like just calculating where things would go from there, you know, so... In some cases, I think, you know, want to look at just revising prices more as like fitting in line with an ideal profit margin. I think the puck product line, it it was new. So I think its price line was a little bit higher, but maybe kind of bringing that somewhat in line to be in, in line with the vices going forward. But then it's kind of like, okay, I think a big portion of the value is in the brand and the existing customer base. You know, they'll be the ones buying, you know, when initially um, inventory is available. How do you kind of put a, a value on the brand and existing customer base? It wasn't really something I got a clear answer on. So I more just kind of came up with a number, added it to my, my running total to see, you know, what they say when I, I, you know, give them a number. Overall, I think everything worked out great. I don't think there was any like strong, you know, this is kind of where we stand type thing. Um, negotiation went pretty smooth. But then kind of like once you kind of like, oh, okay, that sounds good. Then is where you need to like involve a lawyer. So luckily I got a reference to a good intellectual property lawyer. And they're kind of really good at kind of sussing out the little details. It's like, well, you know, this is you know, exclusivity, you know, you want to include things like consulting going forward, like, you know, just even going on, like have questions, you know, why, why do you build things this way? You know, including things like that into the contract, you know, all kinds of different clauses. So, I mean, like the lawyer process probably took about a month. Initially it's like kind of getting you up to speed, different aspects to be looking at it. Like, 
you know, how do you explain it better? You know, all the lawyer-esque speak. They know all the different edge cases, all the different things. And they kind of go back, talk with the sellers, get everyone on the same page, and then they can kind of go forward with putting together an initial draft of the paperwork. And then kind of reviewing, and that's where it's like, the words matter and how this is phrased and that and, you know, which jurisdiction things are in and and ensuring all that's crossed off and whatnot. The lawyer piece is just very interesting. Like they're kind of there to like think of the worst, worst, you know, the worst possible scenarios and then be like, how do you want to handle in this case? Um, You know, if there's anything long running with the deal, well, what if one of the people die? How does that get passed on then? What if there's ever an interest in coming back? You know, we'll add a clause that, you know, can't buy better, you know, recreate the same product for some period and things like that. Makes sense. Okay. So you, you know, you make your offer, you talk to lawyers, yada, yada. What does the actual purchasing process look like after that? After that, it's easy. It's just the two of you. The lawyers are kind of happy and satisfied. You can, you know, you wire the money. Part of the, the contract includes a list of all the deliverables. They just start delivering those. Timeline isn't necessarily critical. I guess, you know, you can put in there like an expectation of like 10, 10 business days. But then as stuff starts coming over, I think we met together just to do the handoff of the accounts and, you know, passwords and changing passwords and those types of things. Um, and then kind of a file dump of all the CAD cam and you know, continue questions going back of like, hey, you know, this aspect, I, I, I didn't see it in anything and, you know, adding it in. Um, you know, one thing was like a question over custom tools that were used or things like that. So there's kind of continual communication, but then it's kind of like you diving into, you know, the design and specifications of everything and then sort of getting a good understanding of each intricate piece and how they all fit together. Did did you have any physical materials that were transitioned or was it pretty much 100% intellectual? They did have some limited inventory. Um, so like that was one of the things the lawyer brought up and, you know, was sure to include. And so they sent over some of what they had. It really wasn't anything, you know, to like, oh, hey, these are available on the store. But it was useful for, for, for kind of like initial validation of fitment you know, building out some of my initial, you know, my own soft jaws and or use of the soft jaws and things like that. Most of what I got from them, I probably won't be using for a while because I want to kind of consider them as like masters Hmm. to kind of, so once I get the height gauge, like looking at what is the consistent thickness across, you know, these five soft jaws they sent me to, you know, how consistent, how consistent with their tolerances were they, so I can use that as a benchmark for myself. Yeah. So what are your, like, what's your, not your five-year plan, that's a little bit too specific, but like, what are the next big milestones for you in Flux Workholding? Like, what what do you see as your big steps going mm-hmm. forwards? So soon I'll be getting one of the existing vices. And I think really my initial goal is producing each of the components myself and ensuring that they function with one of the existing pieces. So one of my soft jaws will fit on, you know, an existing vice base. One of my pucks will fit with an existing base and things like that. So that way I have, 
I can make each of the pieces. I ensure they function and they function for, you know, existing customers. Then it's like, okay, how can I build out, you know, my, my production pipeline? So, you know, like right now, just, it's like one piece in a vice, I flip it, not really conducive to like production volumes, but like once I have one and I know it's working right, okay, how can I make uh, a pallet or soft jaws where, you know, I can, you know, have a one piece workflow where, you know, up one at one station, up two, up three, whatever. Uh, so that that way I can start, you know, building them in volume with high repeatability and kind of start being able to have stuff available. So the second milestone, I guess, would be like parts are in stock. And then, you know, that's where as I get some initial ones available, looking at how can I, how do I want to package these? How do I want to ship them? What do they how do they put it together? Like different types of boxes, things like that. Um, you know, the other day I got the design, the everything Kickstarter and it was like, all oh, this, you know, you showed off a, one of your, your boxes in a recent story. I'm like, oh, this is a perfect, like nice setup, very good presentation. I don't think necessarily need that level of, pr uh, of presentation for soft jaws and whatnot, but still looking at how can I have things well packaged, concise, I like working kind of like a lean workflow where I ship from inventory rather than build to order. So how can I kind of get things prepackaged on a shelf? So an order comes in, I pull it from the shelf, I box it together and it's good to go. Yeah. Do you, do you think you're going to have any kind of beta or is it just going to be like, I'm going to, instead of like, are you, are you going to send it out to some key individuals to like, Hey, run these through the paces, see what you can come up with and then and then open the floodgates or is your plan is, hey, once once I got production nailed down, I feel like I'm nailing down the quality. These have already been in the field for a little while. It's not like I'm releasing a new product. It's an existing product. So once once I feel comfortable that I can meet production needs and I can meet the quality that they've specified, that just send it. I'm probably going to send a few soft drives to some existing people I know. So like the guy who who's sending me his vice. I'm going to get all the measurements I can from it. I don't really want to use his vice. I, it's not mine, so I don't necessarily want to abuse it. But I do want to make sure everything clamps, test you know, some clamping pressure with it and things like that. But then I'll probably be sending it back and send him some soft jaws, just like, hey, this is what I'm producing. Maybe try out some of it. I think where I'm going to mostly do beta is where it's entirely my components. It's like, this is where it's entirely what I've produced um, and probably where, you know, it's not just one piece, like the soft jaws, fairly simple, but like it clamps on all the existing stuff and there's no internals to it involved. Those I'll probably send out to a few people and just be like, hey, try it out, see how things work. Maybe use it with some of your existing soft jaws, you know, just making sure that, you know, the threads on my shuttles aren't fatiguing or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things I think opening the floodgate will be a little bit nervous. And especially like when looking at lean and shipping from inventory, I don't know what a reasonable initial, uh, initial inventory will be. So I might be like easy and have stuff on a shelf for a while, or I might be quickly out of stuff and remaking. That's fair. That's fair. I didn't want to do too much of an initial investment. So it's like, is... 10 soft jaw sets per size reasonable 
Um, is 10 initial vices reasonable? I don't think it is going to be. It's like, how much is reasonable? Like 10, 20, 30? I don't want to overproduce, but at the same time, I want to be a little bit prepared. Have you thought about doing some sort of like a sign up or like pre pre sale or like a some something to gauge community interest and desire to try to get your your first batch size figured out? I did in stock notifications on the store. I added that, um, but there's only been a few sign ups, so it's like I don't think it's a really good benchmark. I think some people are kind of like just waiting to see don't necessarily like there's maybe things they critically know they want like you know i need another one of these but like you know when i look at soft draws or something like that i usually stockpile i usually am like i want five sets just to have so that when i need one i go grab Mm -hmm. one and i think that's where people who are in that mindset is where i might sell out quickly yeah it's like if i'm selling to myself i might be in trouble (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so right now most of your work holding is lang correct yes and then i do make my own pallets that mount to the lang light lang plates as well are you gonna switch over any of your work holding to flux now like for example for making some of the flux stuff i plan to make the bases compatible with the lang plates so i plan to put the 96 in 52 millimeter studs compatibility. So I I would like to have multiple options for the base plates. So, you know, I think their default was Saunders Machine Works compatible, but then I'll probably also make some where you can mount it to a length plate. Like on my 1000, I could actually mount 16 of the flux vices. I don't think I would ever actually need that many all at once, but I think that I think is the best um, compatibility for where my existing investment is. Um, I still like the Lang vices, like the macro grip is great and things like that. But for production of the flux stuff, I'll likely be mostly using the flux vices. And then I are, I've already made my own Lang flux puck base. Where yes. does where do the strengths of the flux system lie? Like what kind of parts would be a perfect customer for the, um, for the flux stuff? I think most of the value lies around um, small parts operations, um, high density. And especially if you're in a smaller envelope and want to get more density than what you can typically fit, you know, just using a standard, you know, like orange or Kurt six inch vice, you're oftentimes sort of limited, even like, before I used orange and it was just like sort of limited in terms of the number of parts you want to do if you want to do something in volume. So oftentimes I was much doing fixturing so that I could fit higher density with, you know, mighty bites and things like that. But I think the value is the small vice. You can actually fit a good number of them, have a wide variety and easily swap different soft drives for a different product lines. So your setup time between product line can be very short. Yeah, ch- changing up the jaws on those things, if I remember, is a pretty quick process and mm-hmm. highly repeatable. Because mm-hmm. that's that's the biggest problem I have with using soft jaws on a normal vice. And they have things like the, um, oh, what is it called? Like even it's orange like du- had locator pins and things like yeah. that. Yeah, 
Yeah, like there's 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 ways you can locate like the way I'm doing it right now. I don't have any way of locating my soft jaws. So from one setup to the next, like I'll use the set of soft jaws once and it's like, oh, my parts came out perfect. And then when I put them on a second time, it's like this is not as good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's one area where having the flux work holding uh, setup that they they have is highly repeatable mm-hmm. that I I. I know there's other systems out there that are like it, but it seems to be a little bit unique for it's kind of a, I don't know, like a hybrid between a zero point system and a, and a vice system. It's like zero point vice setup is kind of the closest thing I can think of to what you're actually doing. Like, I think in many ways it's, it it, it is kind of niche itself. Like even, you know, working in, in laser fixturing is kind of niche, but like it has, I think a sweet spot where, you know, the price is not outrageous like laying gear. It's, you know, laying can be very expensive where you're very selective in your choosing. But like the flux and especially the consumables, I think very reasonably priced makes it attractive either for, you know, your own production as you build up your volume or even prototyping. But then it's also appealing to those starting out, you know, who are on a Tormach and don't necessarily want, you know, to, you know, you can easily spend more on Lang than like your machine. Yep. <laughs> and, and like, I, I think there's a good middle ground there, which, which flux is kind of ideal for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even just like the puck for the fourth axis converter, if you have some parts that you need to get to different sides and don't want to invest in a rotary, like it's a fraction of the cost to just do the fourth converter. Yeah, that's, I think, one of the coolest things that you have in your product line, um, especially because you can get, you know, the 15 degrees of, of freedom there. Mm-hmm. And I think in the Kickstarter, they teased the dove holder, the dovetail um, attachment. And I plan to add that as well once I have the initial product lined up. But then it's kind of useful, you know, if you're building something, cut a little dovetail in it and then you can slap it on the fourth and, you know, do all kinds of stuff to it. Do you know off the top of your head what the diameter of the puck is? I don't have one Give right here. I believe it was about 80 millimeters. That's just off the top of my head. So small enough that it could fit on a, let's say, for example, Tormach MicroArc. If someone yes. happened to have one of those. I do. Uh, and I'm always struggling with work holding on it. Oh, it's, uh, that's the wrong dimension. That yes, kind of bring- it, is, it is right about 75 millimeters. Okay. Yeah, I that believe brings- the micro arcs use an 80 millimeter chuck. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's that would work. Hmm. That's tempting. <laughs> that is really tempting. Does, does, uh, do you feel like you're going to build out special editions of all the different versions of, your, of the flex work holding items? Like, for example, in this case, you might sell AJ a, uh, a puck for his uh, fourth axis. So... Yeah, I think in many ways there's value in certain customizations, you know, if, you know, need a specific hole mounting pattern or, you know, even like, you know, a, a puck that fits to the micro arc bolting pattern. Um, you know, there's some common bolting patterns for rotaries and things like that. I think allowing some of those certain customizations, there's value in it. And then also having adapter plates available for, you know, if something's slightly larger than the puck being able to mate them without uh, adding a lot of volume. Yeah. I could put your 
fourth axis adapter onto my fourth axis and then have a five axis. <laughs> you could. <laughs> that would actually be awesome. <laughs> would you ever consider doing anything more automated, like a pneumatic clamping, unclamping, or even like a lever? I think definitely that's something I have a technical interest in and might be useful looking at at some point. You know, even someone had reached out to me asking if we'd bring the Flux Vice back in 7075 instead of steel. And the main reason he was interested is like actually robots picking up and swapping the vices. Oh, it's like, that, that makes was actually a, a really sense. interesting idea. You know, if you have it on a zero plate or, or some, something like that that's pneumatically released, there's actual value in that, you know. I know people who have robots like lifting laying pallets and it's like, geez, I can't imagine how much their bill is. But, you know, I think going forward, I think there would be some interest around that, especially with some of the things like the puck, because of sort of how unique and easily swappable that is. It would, it would make a lot of sense for your, um, I don't remember what you call them, but the, the flexure based vices, the ones that are basically just a chunk of aluminum with a flexure. Mm-hmm. Those would be so light to put on a robot arm. Oh yeah, definitely. And a <clears throat> lot cheaper than a, a row of pallet system or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think with the vice, the main thing with a robot would be like making them compatible with existing robots. So like a pneumatic release yes. type system. So you're swapping parts, not a robot swapping soft jaws. That's one thing I always find interesting. Like some of the different types of setups people get. Automation, I think, is a really, you know, even just before I was in machining, I was very much in deployment automation and things like that. Uh, so I'm always a fan of how you can automate something to get like high process reliability, repeatability, and then scale out of it. Yep. Well, any uh, final thoughts, Harrison? No, this has been really interesting. I'm I'm exciting to see Flux Workholding come back. Hopefully this podcast does a little bit to get the word out there that it's coming back because I don't I don't know how much advertising you've done up to this point, but we'll 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 help a little bit we can. <laughs> Not yet. I'm kinda like in a holding pattern until I can get stuff available. It's like Yeah. It's like I need no, some it's... time to make sure I'm 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 good to go. Well, well our five it... listeners and my mom will now know. So <laughs> there you go. Oh the other one of them is probably my mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah taps and patience the the best machining podcast for your mom yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a reminder to everybody out there if you make a physical product or offer a service making physical products and you want to uh, promote yourself send us a message we will put you on the podcast well, not necessarily put you on the podcast but we will promote your product and or service on the podcast for free we don't take sponsors right now. We don't have a Patreon, but if you want to, if you want to plug, send me a message. And we'll get you a plug. Ken, would you like to plug your social medias and website and stuff? Sure. Flexworkholding.com on Instagram, flexworkholding, and then Robertson Custom Creations on Instagram and robertsoncustomcreations.com. I might need a flex puck to go on my, my fourth axis. It's very tempting. Let me know. I can hook you up. All right. Deal. <laughs> I know a guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we've reached that time in the podcast where I get to listen to the music that hopefully everyone else is to to let me know that I need to do the outro. It's so. been working lately. People have been hearing it, so. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, for everyone that's been listening, we've appreciated, appreciated you hanging on to the very end. Ken, it's been great to have you on and uh, hear about all the changes that are going on in your world and get to kind of poke and prod to the inner workings of... Uh, buying a business so we appreciate you coming on and doing that thank you yep so uh this is harrison with precision ingenuity signing out with aj from design the everything and our guest ken with robertson customs and flux work holding so 